If you have a Bible, would you please open it? We're nearing the end of 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 27 today. So if you have a Bible, we'll be in 1 Samuel. We'll do the whole chapter. Before we do that, let us pray together. Let us seek the Lord. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and kindness to us. Your grace is uh, overflowing, Lord. Not only in the things in this world that we get to enjoy, the food and the fun and our wives, our husbands, our children, our work. You, you have filled us with good things, Lord. We have the, the scriptures. We can pray to you. We can sing to you. We gather to worship you, Lord. I pray that as we, we open your word now that we would be filled with um, gratitude, that we would be filled with joy, that we would be filled with resolve and courage and strength in the troubling, troubled times that we're in. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us. It, it is a very difficult to consider when and how we ought to lie, uh, when it's righteous to lie. And as we think about these things, Lord, let us not receive it in the flesh, but let us receive it as your children. We thank you and we praise you and amen. That's actually, in fact, what we're going to be talking about today. When it is gloriously good to lie. (laughs) Glorious good lying. Now, that is something our pietistic ears have a difficult time hearing. But as we look at this, the text before us, as, as we consider the fact that throughout it, David has been a sort of shadow, an echo of Jacob. Jacob is, of course, the person, the, one of the patriarchs in Genesis who lied to his father about being Esau, who lied to his father-in-law about the sheep, who, who did a great deal of deception, a great deal of lying. And yet the Lord blessed him mightily. Now, what you have here is this part of the story. Um, Jacob goes into Egypt at the end of his life and dies there. He goes into exile, and he remains in exile. And he never gets to see his people restored to the land. And so here, what you have is David going into exile. He leaves Israel, but he will not die there. Just as earlier in the story, the ark had gone into Philistia, remember? At the very beginning of the story, it had gone into exile, and it returned as a victorious king. That is what's going to happen to David. But the connection between him and Jacob is very strong, because the the commentators, almost to a man, find a great deal of fault with David in this chapter. Not only is he a liar, (laughs) but he he kills women in battle. He doesn't murder them, he kills them. He goes to a place and he kills both the women and the men, and he does so so that the women can't inform on him and what he's doing, because he's telling lies. And he, he kills even the women because he doesn't want the women letting the Philistines know that he's lying to them. Now, and what I'm going to do is defend his actions and, 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 and encourage you to do likewise. <laughs> it all starts in the very beginning of the chapter where David seems to be considering what he ought to do on his own. This is what throws people off right at the very beginning. He's, he, he reconciles in himself this idea that, listen, I'm going to die at the hand of Saul unless I run away. I have got to run away in order to save myself. And all along, right, he's been struggling to believe God, to obey God, to remain faithful to God. And, and here, what, he, what, what you see is him not relying on God, but uh, relying on a plan that he has made up himself. And so right there, people are like, oh, look, he's faithless. He's lost faith in God. And he runs away. And then while he's running away, that's why he's lying. That's why he's killing women. That's why he's doing all these other things. And, and, and modern commentators to a man condemn him for it. But God wants us to use our sanctified wisdom. San, or, uh, David considers within himself, listen, if I keep this up, if I keep running around and he keeps chasing me, he's got 3,000 soldiers, he is eventually going to find me. Two plus two equals four. I understand how this works. I can only hide for so long. So what I'm going to do is go to Philistia, and then he'll stop chasing me. And what we find out in verse four of this chapter is, in fact, after he runs away, you know who stops chasing him? Saul. So wisdom is justified by her children. He makes a plan to run away, and it works. God blesses it. And so is he acting faithlessly or not? It's, the, the, this uh, particular story, like several stories in the Old Testament, is really difficult for us to understand. It, it's, counter to, to, it's, it's contrary to what most of us consider to be ethical behavior. <laughs> and, and sometimes 
Sometimes what is required of us as Christians is what looks like unethical behavior. But we have to understand why. We have to understand how. We have to understand against whom. Right? I remember when I was um, teaching at Providence, I, I had a seventh grade Bible class, and I was teaching them about deception, about lying when it was good. Um, I didn't check with the headmaster, maybe should have. Because I remember the next day I got a call from a parent. Listen, my kids lied to me last night, and they said that you were, they got the idea from you because you said it was good to lie to your enemies. So then, <laughs> so then I had to take the kids back and be like, listen, clearly I failed to explain this because your, par- your parents are the enemy. The lying is out of bounds. Okay? Your parents are not the enemy. So right out of the gate, determining who the enemy is you're lying to helps you determine, figure out whether you should be lying or not. And I remember, ever since that moment, I was like, I am going to have to go about teaching this material uh, much more carefully. <laughs> because what I don't want are people going out of the world and lying and be like, well, my pastor told me I should. Okay? Who are, the, who are our enemies? What are they up to? Would deception help us at this point? Is, is, and are we all called to it? Are we all called to go out and be deceivers? Or are, are, are we in a situation, like David here, where some of us have to actually go out and actively deceive the enemy? Right? We are a fighting force. If, <laughs> you can tell that Joel and I were at Presbytery last week because there is a somewhat more martial, warlike tone to our service today. And, and this is what we have to consider. We are an army. We are on the move. We are, we are not being attacked. We are the ones attacking. Right? It's time for us to completely rearrange the furniture in our minds about what's going on right now. We are not on the run. We've got them on the run. And they're demonstrating it all the time by the things they're doing. <laughs> they're terrified. Their worldview is collapsing in on itself. They are devouring themselves. And, and we are not being defeated. We are winning. And, and part of it now is for us as an army to determine whether it's time for some of us to go out and lie to them. Is that strategically going to help us? But in order to understand how and why to do that, we have to go to the scriptures and learn from the word of God how this kind of warfare is to be conducted. So let us turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 27, and I'll read verse 1 through 4. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, Achish, the son of uh, Mok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, uh, Aenom of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. He, he's not acting faithlessly. He's acting wisely. Now, because this, this is the thing that we have to consider. At what point, right, are you supposed to get up and make a plan? Right? Are we supposed to live without making plans? Uh, the, the Colossus learned this years ago. It was one of the first lessons I learned when I was Christian. God wants you to make a plan. He demands you to make a plan. The key is understanding that he will at any time, for his own reasons, change the plan completely. <laughs> right? I've made, I, we've made five-year plans again and again and again. Do you know how many of them have actually worked out? None of them. Right? None of them have come. Because somewhere along the line, God does what he does. But what I find is he blesses us far more than any plan we ever had. But he doesn't want his children just wandering around aimlessly. He wants them to make a plan. He doesn't want David just wandering around the desert. He's a king. It's time to act like a king. So David comes up with the scheme of running away to Philistia with his entire household, give everybody a break, give his soldiers a break, give his wives a break, give their households a break, give them a rest. He's leading them into a different kind of promised land. He's like Joshua here. He says, listen, I'll lead you into this land of the Philistines, and I will give you rest, he says to his own people. So the premise here is not that David is running around lying to people because David is benefiting David. David is, bring, is, is, is deceiving the Philistines in order to bring them rest. As long as he's hunted, they're hunted. Now if Saul is not hunting him, they're not hunting them. He's demonstrating that he is as wise as a serpent, as innocent as a dove. God loves it when when what we give to one another is rest. What we give to one another is Sabbath rest. That's what the Sabbath is all about. It's not just about me going home and not having to go to work. It's about giving rest to one another. That's why Sabbath laws are the way that they are. Giving the people rest is something that the people of God 
ought to be all about. And that's what David is providing, and that's why God blesses it. Now, this is the second time that David has fled to Gath to escape Saul, and the first time was back in chapter 21, and it was a very different story then. This time, his circumstances and his reception are completely different. The first time he'd entered Gath, he was armed and he was alone, and and they did not trust him. They thought that he came as an assassin. However, this time, David is entering as infamous outlaw and rebel. He's well-known. It's well-known what's going on with him. It's well-known what he's doing. It's well-known how much Saul is hunting him. We know this because the Philistines, who, who have planned several attacks, have timed it perfectly for when Saul was away hunting David down. So clearly, the Philistines know what's going on in Israel. And they know that he is an outlaw. They know that he is a rebel. They know that the king wants him dead and will spend a great amount of resources on trying to find him. Now, acting in accordance with the timeless dictum, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, the Philistine ruler welcomes David. says, listen, you know how hard it is to protect the southern border? (laughs) I've got this guy now who who has an armed mercenary band, and all I've got to do is give him a city, and he's going to protect my southern border for me. It's a completely different story than back in chapter 21. There's value in what David is offering now because, because he's shown that he's successful in avoiding Saul. So David goes into exile. Just like the ark had been in exile at the beginning of the, of the book, just like the, Babel, uh, the Babylonian exile of Israel, exile is something that the people of God experience again and again and again. David is not, is not fearing it. He's embracing it. He's using it as a weapon. He's using exile as a weapon. That's something that when the people of God use the exile, right, we tend to think of our circumstances like, oh, woe is me. I'm sent away from the land. I'm sent away from the people. God's face is turned against me. I'm surrounded by enemies. And, and what God does is uses exile as a weapon. He used Jesus' three days in the ground as a weapon. David is using exile as a weapon. And that's a very different way of thinking about exile. We fear it. But what ought to happen is the enemy ought to fear it. Right? When God starts sending us into exile, he, there's about to come what? A bunch of death and resurrection. When the people of God go into exile, it's the thing that happens right before God does something tremendous that doesn't work out for his enemies. If we remember, Israel had underwent a death and resurrection back in Egypt. They went through the, a wilderness period. Later, they're going to do the same thing in Babylon. The same happened uh, to Israel to Israel, David, and the exiles. And this is also a type of Christ. Christ goes into exile, right? Remember, he wandered in the wilderness. He was outside creating a new Israel, apart from the Israel that was corrupt at the time. Later, Jesus goes into the ground for three days, and he comes up, and he he has completely transformed Israel. G.K. Chesterton said this, Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. We cannot be the kind of people who, cre- who treat Christianity itself as some kind of idol that can't be destroyed. Right? I said this way back in the summertime. Why would a minister trample on people's baptisms? Why would a minister trample on the sacrifices? Why would, why would a minister trash the very things that are most sacred to God? Why is it that we would trash Christianity itself? Because it needs to die. The things that we, that we um, elevate above the Lord God himself, even if it's our baptism, even if it's Christianity itself, has got to die so that it can rise again. This is the story of God's people. We have got to figure out and, and, and recognize when we have made even the most sacred things idols. Now, right now, given what's going on in the world, are you treating Christianity itself as if it's something that ought not to die, cannot die, must defend it at all costs. Right? And what you realize is when you, right? Think about the way people are reacting to what's going on right now. We're acting as if Christianity itself, right? The doctrines, the people, the churches, all of the apparatus that we call modern Christianity, we're, we're trying to defend it. Why? Why? Right? What has it produced? Are we, are we still the people, modern American Christians, who are feeding the masses? who are providing hospitals and schools? Are we the people who are going out there to the marginalized and the poor 
and giving, right? The modern Christianity, as it is, has got to die. And we have got to stop resisting the Lord attempting to kill it and bury it in the ground. It's time to go into exile. It's time. And, and, and our resistance to that has been a problem these last 18 months. We have got to stop resisting exile. We have got to weaponize it now. In his book on miracles, C.S. Lewis wrote this, death and resurrection are what the story is about. And had we but eyes to see it, this has been hinted on every page, met us in some disguise at every turn, and even been muttered in conversations between such minor characters, if they are minor characters, as the vegetables. The vegetables understand something that we do not. And that is, death and resurrection is glorious. Death and resurrection brings life. Death and resurrection is what the story is all about. Right? Let's go down. Like, you want to preach the gospel to yourself? Go down to the produce section at Freddy's. Be like, look at all, all these people are coming, coming here, gathering in this place, taking all the produce and going home and feeding themselves with it. And all this death, all, this de- all these dead crops are bringing life to people. Like, the vegetables themselves are crying out to the glory of God that this is the way. Why is it that we are resisting death and resurrection? Why is it that we're holding on to and protecting things that we, that we have got to recognize needs to go into the ground and die? Stop resisting exile. Go into exile. It's the way forward. It's the way forward. Now, David is a type of Israel, and both are a type of Christ. Death and resurrection were what the biblical story was always about, and that's what we see David doing here. He's willing to die by going into Philistia in order to not only bring life to the people who are following him, but to come out again as a risen king, able to lead the new Israel, the true Israel, after Saul in the direction that it ought to go. He's building the Lord's kingdom by going willingly into exile. 1 Samuel 27, 5-7. Then David said to Achish, If, you, if I have found favor... The word is grace. If I found grace in your eyes, let a place be given to me in, the country, in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Right at the beginning of the story, they're telling us his exile doesn't last forever. Now why do you think the exiles at the time that they compiled this history, he needed to hear that. David didn't know how long he was going to go into exile, but they're telling us this little detail that seems meaningless. They're telling us he did this, and it was only a year and four months. I, I have had, I remember a day in my life where I realized I had gone into exile, and I had no idea how long it was going to last. But I remember thinking, I, this is what, I have got to embrace this now and recognize this. I have got to make this something that is meaningful and useful. And I I was in exile from what I thought I ought to be doing for for three years. And and I'm almost glad it wasn't longer. And and what what I couldn't have heard at the time was this detail about how long it was going to be. It wouldn't have have helped me because I needed resolve to dig deep and live in the situation that I was in. Now, it's kind of mysterious what I'm saying. It was professions. There was something I thought I ought to be doing but instead, God sent me somewhere else. And I ended that for three years, and it was an exile. And I knew that it was an exile, and I, and, and I was resolved to make the most of it. And now I stand before you here, talking about this. Because this is the, kind of, this is the news that we need to hear. I am so grateful to God that he tells us exactly how long David was there, because it's the kind of thing we need to hear. Exiles are not forever. Christ's exile was not forever. Israel's exile was not forever. None of the times they had to endure it. And David's exile is not forever. There is a time period. And that time period, what God calls them, whoever is in exile, for that period of time is to be faithful in the exile, to weaponize it and use it for the glory of God. Now, Achish, in his role as king of a city-state with dependencies, he has a feudal right to give land away. (laughs) This is... Luckily, well, you know, Inslee yet doesn't have this power, but we'll see. Uh, if, right, you have these people coming from Afghanistan or coming here, and we're absorbing them into Snohomish County. And, and they're just sort of living amongst us now. If you didn't know this, there's a lot of people who, are, who are, have been coming here from, they've been raising uh, food and money and things for these folks. They've been coming here from Afghanistan, given the fact that it, it collapsed and people had to flee. Now, in, in this time period, what, what Jay Inslee would have done is just been like, okay, clear out of Linwood and give it to these people. 
That's essentially what's happening here. He's like, okay, David, you go and you can have this town now. Right? That's the power of a king. So if you ever, we have to remind ourselves exactly how the feudal kings used to work. Uh, our, our kings have not yet gotten to that point where they can just be like, everybody move out of your house. <laughs> We're giving, giving away the land. But as I said, we'll see. Now, Ziklag was a border town in the foothills between Philistine and the Simeonite territory. Now, it was given to Simeon back in Joshua 15 and 19. God said he's giving them the land, and part of the land that is given to them is this place that they have not possessed up to this point. David's cleverness did what previous military campaigns had failed to do. It brought Ziklag into Israelite hands, and as it says, it belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. So David isn't just going into exile. David is going into exile to finish conquering the land that Israel had yet failed to conquer. And, and why would we ever then think that God can't use the exiles he sends us into to, to expand his kingdom? Now, we don't know why. Did they, did they have the land and then it was taken from them, or did they never conquer it at all? That we don't know. What we do know in this story is that David is finishing what Israel had left unfinished. He's not on the run, right? Exactly. We all think, oh, no, David's going into exile now. The story's over. It's bad. It's terrible. And, and he, right, it looks like he's on the run, but his enemies are on the run. Now, from David's point of view, Ziklag had the advantage of being well away from Saul's territory as well as in isol- isolated from his Philistine um, allies at this point. So no, it's far enough away from all, everybody that he really is giving his people rest, and he is far enough away now to not be informed on very easily. He strategically placed himself right in this exile in the most helpful way to himself and ultimately to Israel. Now, Achish at this point has no way of knowing whether David really is loyal to Saul or not. He assumes it, and David doesn't correct him. Right? He, he, he brings David in and he says, here, have this town, guard my southern border. Uh, making all kinds of assumptions. Who ever said that David was on Achish's side? And this is the first example where David just doesn't give information. If he gave information, the truth would be, would, would be understood. So it's a form of lying what he's doing. He withholds information to give an impression that he uses to his advantage. Achish believed that David was a disaffected Israelite warlord, and David was content to let Achish believe so. Now, in what situation would you do something similar? Right? I thought we were always supposed to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth all the time. But as we can see, biblically, there are times where withholding information actually helps us fulfill our mission. Now, Achish himself was likely a convert during this time that he's dealing with David. Later on in 1 Samuel 29, verse 6, and 29, verse 9, Achish actually swears by Yahweh. Then Achish called David and said to him, as the Lord lives, which is something that David has said, something that Saul has said, it's something that believers say. So not, right, this is truly David out there expanding the kingdom of God, not just territorially, but spiritually. He's bringing Achish into the kingdom. He's bringing this land of the Philistines into the kingdom that was rightfully theirs. Like Jesus, David was rejected by his own, but found a welcome reception amongst the Gentiles. Acts chapter 4, verse 11 to 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So here is David going to the Gentiles after being rejected by Israel and finding a a good reception there. And all through the Gospels, that's what you see happening to Jesus. Now, Achish stood to gain from having David's army protecting his southern border. Achish may have also hoped to win the support of Judah against Saul, right? Here's one of your prominent men, Judah. He's come over to my side. Maybe Judah will come over to my side now. And Achish will use all of them to fight against Saul. That's what he's hoping. Now, David was, (laughs) he didn't just go there, find, find a comfortable chair, poolside, get the little umbrella drink, and hang out. That's not why he's there. He, was, he had a very active ministry when he was in Ziklag. 
Later in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 26 through 31, it says this, When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah. Okay, it's a comma there, to his friends and to the elders of Judah. So later, after he wins a huge victory, he brings back all the swag and he starts distributing it amongst his friends in the, part, in the place where he had been exiled. So he, while he's there, not only has, is he winning Achish over to the true faith, he's making friends while he's there. It's a very fruitful time for him. David is hunted and on the run, exiled from the palace, from Israel itself, and yet this, his ministry is powerful and planting seeds that he's going to continue harvesting all throughout his life. Now, so far, who wants to go into exile, right? If exile is like this, I'm, I'm ready. And, and what we do not understand about the Bible is that exile is always like this. This is always what it's like. Why was the gospel able to take over the world so quickly? Because the Jews had gone into exile under Babylonian captivity. That's why there's synagogues all over the Gentile world. That's why they learned Greek. That's why they were able to speak the common language at the time. It was because they'd already endured an exile and thought, and people thought, like we usually think, nothing good will come from this. It seems like David's ministry is pretty powerful. So who's on the run, really? Is it David? or the Philistines, or the false believers in Israel. It seems like everybody is on the run but David. And later, when the exiles uh, in Israel under the Babylonian captivity, they are the reason that the gospel is able to move so quickly, so well throughout the world. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Do not think that death is not the way to life. Do not think that, your ex- that exile is something to be avoided, something that is a curse, something that is wicked and evil and we ought not embrace. 1 Samuel 27, verse 8 through 11. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerizites, the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of the Jeharamalites. It's a tough one, sorry. Or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. (laughs) Now, given his large entourage, David's request for a city was reasonable. He claimed that he did not wish to be a burden to Achish. He also hoped living outside of Gath would give him freedom of movement outside outside of surveillance, which it does. Now, even while he's in exile, David was beginning to, to complete the conquest, not just by taking cities, but cleansing the land of the evil people who lived there. At this point, he, right, when he, it says that he kills men and women. Everybody freaks out. All the pietistic moderns are like, ah! Well, there's this little book called Deuteronomy. And in that book, God said, listen, go into this land and, and, and just destroy everything. Destroy everything, right? These people have been worshiping. Don't, like, don't, take them, don't take them as slaves. Don't take them as your wives. Don't let anyone live. Kill everything, sometimes even the animals. And remember, Saul didn't want to do it, and what happened to Saul? Now, do, we live in a time, and I want to know, why is it that so many of us are acting more like Saul than David? David knows how to fight his enemies. David says, take no prisoners. David says, let's, let's go and get them and cleanse this land. Where, where, like modern Christians, Saul was like, how can I profit off of this personally? Because we are modern people who are more concerned about our own comfort, our own profit, our own world, our own kingdoms, than we are about expanding the kingdom of God at whatever it takes. What are you willing to do? Right? Do you think David woke like just all by himself was like, you know what? Let's go, let's just let's go to this town down the street and just kill everybody. He's sitting there eating his Wheaties, making plans. Like you think that this was like not difficult for him. Who would want to sign up for this? And yet God says, go and do it. Now, isn't that a, isn't that us, right? Oh, wait, wait, you want me to what now? You want me to homeschool my own kids? 
You want me to lose my job instead of getting this poke that I don't really want? You, you, I have to give up soccer fields now? Like, this is what they're talking about. Like, kids are going to have to give up sports. And there, there are some amongst us who are like, okay, that's the line there. My kid can't play baseball. Are you out of your mind? Right? I'm not living under this kind of, I'm not going into exile. I'm not living under this kind of tyranny. And here's David who gets up, gets his boys together, his ride-or-die soldiers, and he goes out there and he does what the Lord calls him to do, however unpleasant it is. And you're telling me that we don't need exile, that we don't need to remember that there are more important things than our own comfort? Seriously, I'm not kidding. Parents are like, this, we have come to the end here. All this other stuff that's happened, I've said nothing. Now that we can't, right, you're going to take away American sports from these kids? You know, they only have like three or four years where this is something that they can really do. Now, I, 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 I want to be very clear about this. It's not pleasant what he's doing. It's not. It's not what he wants to be doing. It's what God told him to do. Joshua chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you in the Jordan. Joshua 6.21, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Now, right, there you are, Christian. If you're a military serving age over the 33, here's your short sword. Now go and kill everyone. Man, woman, young, old. What would you do if that was the command that God gave you? How many of you would be like, you know, this Christian thing has not really worked out for me like I thought. I'm being asked to do some things that are, that are a little unethical. <laughs> that I, I can't go there with this. I can't ride where this is going. I can't go into, I, I, I don't want any part of this. Right? And, and, and think about that. Now, I want to bring it down a few levels. You're doing that all the time. You're doing that all the time. God says to us, listen, fathers, raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We're like, no, no, see, but there's this free option that doesn't really, it's just there. Right? And the bus comes, takes the kids away. God tells you to what? Love your neighbor. Take care of the sick. Take care of the poor. Take care of the marginalized. When is the last time we've done those things? We don't even need to go to the extreme of taking swords and chopping people up who God tells us to chop up. We, like When we get out of the bed in the morning, there are some low-level things like don't covet your neighbor's stuff that we can't even fulfill. We're like, whoa, I can't covet stuff? How am I going to watch TV then? Like, I mean, I mean, the Ten Commandments was written before modern advertising, right? But we just accept modern advertising as this thing, and we, and we let it have power and force over us. We're like, no, we're just going to absorb the entertainment and the things that are in the land instead of getting rid of them. We're, like, we're totally going to bed with modern culture, and we think it's, it's really difficult because we've got to wear masks when we go in a grocery store. You're like, we already sold out so hard that what are we even talking about at this point? That's persecution? Like, why don't you actually try doing something difficult for the kingdom of God for once? We, we, we would be like, keep the sword, okay? There's a Mormon church down the street. They don't ask us to do such extreme things. I, I, my argument is that we wouldn't even have to get to that level, that kind of crazy level that David is getting to, before we would just be like, nope, I'm, I'm good. Tap out. David did not leave any women alive, not merely for pragmatic reasons. This is, people accuse him. This is Christian commentators, pastors and ministers, accuse him of simply being a pragmatist. Well, you know what would really help me out politically is if I just chop all these women up. You're like, what do you, What? No, how about, this is what God said to do when you're conquering the land. There is that little bit in the Bible, you know, as unpleasant as it is for us to read, that we, we want to pretend like it's not there because it doesn't fit with the safe, comfort, safe, comfortable Christianity that we've designed for ourselves. 
right? And you start there, and let's think of how many other things are like that, right? You want to talk about slavery in the Bible? You want to talk about the kind of warfare that Israel, what you're like? And then we've come up with great things like, oh, well, that's in the Old Testament. Jesus would never do those things. Who do we think the angel of the Lord is who slaughtered 185,000 people in one day? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 through 4. When the Lord your God brings you, brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you very quickly. Don't go into the land. Don't make covenants with them. Don't intermarry with them. Don't sell out for them. Don't accept their, their version of religion. Cleanse yourself of the culture. And just to make sure that it doesn't lead you astray, go in there and kill everything. Now, if I told you to do that to your Netflix account or your book, right? Just the books you own, right? Just the music you listen to. How about you go to work and, and you, what you do is you, is you go there to put sin to death, not compromise with everyone. Like, <laughs> like, I'm not just pointing the finger. I'm, I'm telling you, you know, you know how much compromise we have done? You know how much compromising? Right? When it comes to culture, when it comes to education, when it comes to uh, our, our middle-class American lifestyles, we have totally sold out. Right? And then the trouble comes, and we think, oh, exile. We're not going into exile. Right? We're not going to be exiled from the people around us. We're supposed to love God and love our neighbors. And, and what we're supposed to do is, abund- is, is make everybody comfortable around us and make everyone feel safe around us and make everyone feel like we're not a threat to them. And God's way of dealing with <laughs> unbelieving culture is burn it to the ground and, and, and make no covenant with it. Let it not be spoken amongst you. Let it not be seen amongst you. Let it not be participated amongst you. And just to be doubly sure, slaughter it all. And yet we take the modern culture and all the modern idolatry and we bring it into our house and we give it the most comfortable seat. We're like, oh my gosh, idolatry, come over here. Do you want a drink? Here, you want a blanket? Are you warm? Are you comfortable? I need you right there because my kids are going to get up in a few minutes and we all need to, to hear from you all at the same time. Turns on the TV. David's deception fulfilled the law of God. It it fulfilled the law of God. God wanted the land cleansed. David goes into exile in order to fulfill the the cleansing of the land and the conquering of the land. He He is as far from immoral as you can be. He's as far as compromised as you can be. Now, as he did in his first visit to Gath, David again deceived Achish by saying that he was raiding Judah. Now, what is actually interesting here is he's not actually lying. God said that the land belonged to Judah. So David says, yeah, I went down and I attacked Judah, which is true. It's just, you know, he didn't attack any Jews down there. He just attacked the unbelievers that lived down there. So his way of answering is very clever because he's, he's, it's actually not inaccurate. What he, what he leaves out, though, is who he slaughtered. And luckily he'd killed everyone, and so nobody could inform on him. His words were deliberately ambiguous. When David said he attacked the Negev, he did not actually say whom he was attacking. And again, our, we, we all line up to call this lying. There's no way, right? It says right in the Ten Commandments, right? Don't ever lie. And yet here he's lying. It, right? <laughs> There's even more complicated ones. It says don't commit adultery. Then you got this little story at the end of Genesis where Tamar has got to trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her committing adultery, and then later everyone recognizes that she's done the righteous thing. Right? We want to simplify the Christian faith so that it's as easy for us as possible. Make it simple, guys. Right? Just give me the book that explains how to do this whole thing on a very simple level. I don't really have to think too hard about it. It's just sort of a natural process, and I will go about my life as comfortable as possible. And here you have biblical characters violating the Ten Commandments, and it's righteous. 
And, and what we cannot do is line up with everybody who just calls it unrighteousness. Well, no, 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 no. There's never a point where you can ever do this. Never. And you end up like Saul. I'm not doing that. It would be wicked to kill this Agag guy. I mean, whatever. He's just a king like me. Right? He's just, I got to love my neighbor. Now, this whole strategy, this lying, this deception is working. Achish is sucked into it. 1 Samuel 27, 12. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his own people. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. He thinks he's made David into a slave. He's lured Achish into this concept that he's actually Achish's slave. And yet he's out there conquering the land for God, giving his people rest, cleansing the land, and, and, and gaining territory that they will never give up. And, they're, and then he's like, oh, look at my good boy over here. Look at my slave. Now, how many of us, right, if, if we were David and, and, and they were like, oh, you're my slave now, we'd be like, I'm nobody's slave. And we wouldn't take this kind of talk about ourselves because we have this high-minded view of ourselves. I'm nobody's slave, right? I can't possibly... Uh, take this sort of public shame and public um, accusation. I can't, I can't put up with this. We have too much pride to be anybody's slave, right? Like how many times in the last 18 months have we, we've been very clear, we're nobody's slaves. David's like, fine, whatever, call me a slave, I don't care. Call me whatever you want, I don't care. I'm out there make, like bringing God's kingdom on earth like I'm supposed to. We have too much pride to do what David's doing here. We have too little biblical knowledge to do what David is doing here. And we are too resistant to exile. Achish is thoroughly taken in by David's skillful lies and therefore trusts him explicitly. Now, Ziklag, the city, never became the center of Israel. It never became the center of Philistia. It's a nowhere town in the middle of nowhere. And yet, in this portion of the scriptures, it is the most important place in the world. You're like, wait, what, what, you know, what's going on right now in Rome? What's going on right now in Athens? What's going on right now you know, in other parts of the world, the important parts of the world? God's story in the, at this point in 1 Samuel stops in this little nowhere town, and, and at the center of it is not only David bringing God's kingdom on earth, but it's, it's, it's bringing the promises, the fulfillment of them from Genesis until Jesus comes. Right? He's moving the ball down the field. He's moving the story along, and it's in this nowhere town. The God who began with the revolution of the cosmos with poor Baron Hannah in the hill country of Ephraim, another nowhere place, is now moving his whole story along about redeeming humanity and another nowhere place called Ziklag, which is a theme, I think, because later he's going to go into some, right, he's going to use a nobody and a, a no-place town called Nazareth to bring the, the Lord Jesus into the world. Right? right now, what do we care about? Do we care about nowhere towns? No, we care about D.C. We care about Olympia, right? Well, what's going on in Seattle? Well, where does God do his work? Now, I'm not saying he doesn't work in those places. That's not what I'm saying. But how often in the Bible is it a little nowhere town, a little nowhere people who are actually moving the ball down the field, who are actually expanding the kingdom of God on earth? Right? We don't only, right? We're too proud to be called some slave, right? Even though it, it's it's progressing us towards glory. We're, we're too proud to go into exile, even though it, right, if we weaponized it, it's actually meaningful. And we're too proud thinking that in some small town like Linwood, there's no way that we could resist what's going on. There's no way we can overcome this. Right? What we need to do is focus all of our attention on who's going to be the next Supreme Court justice. What we need to do is focus all of our attention on the presidency. What we need to do is focus all of our attention on this, that, or the other thing. And, and we, because we don't want to be a small nowhere town. Now, it's overdue for, by months, but let's talk about lying. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about how glorious it is to lie. How God honors lying, how God loves it in the right circumstances. A lie is not simply an untrue statement. A mistake is not a lie. A parable is not a lie, even though it may describe events that didn't actually take place. A fictional story is not a lie, unless the author pretends it's factual. Right? If you write memoirs and you tell all these stories and then later it turns out to be lies, that's wicked and that's evil. But if you just write a book about some small town, fine. Right? You're not, nobody's like, hey, that guy's lying. 
There's no such thing as Gandalf. <laughs> now, a hyperbolic state, statement, it took me forever to get here, is not a lie. It's a linguistic device, right? Oh, my gosh, I was up all night. Well, I actually went to bed at 11, but it felt like I was up all night, right? And, and <laughs> with one another, imagine if we were like, whoa, that's a lie. Did you actually stay up all night? Well, then why are you saying that? But we, we allow these things to occur around us, stories, language, and, and we all understand what's going on. Now, in games, whether it's board games or athletic contests, strategy often dictates deception. Everyone understands this and participates with that understanding. Without deception, there would be no baseball. This is what Joel and I was talking about. You take away the changeup, you take away pitching, like the whole game is a pitcher trying to fake out the batter. So now, imagine if we all went down there and were protesting, right? Why are you supporting lying? Right? Shut the game down. But nobody does that, right? I mean, a changeup works because deception works. And it makes uh, the game of baseball very, very, very exciting. When the quarterback hides the ball and thereby misdirects the defense, he deceives them. But nobody would call him a liar, right? It, and I mean, if you think about it, Tom Brady is like the greatest liar to ever live. <laughs> on a lot of levels. <laughs> right? But we don't get angry that he does it on Sunday afternoons in a, in a football stadium. Now, magic, based on sleight of hand, also relies on deception, but everybody knows that, and given that understanding, it's delightful, right? I love a good magic trick. I don't know about you, but when people pull it off, I know all, right, because I know there's no such thing as, like, actual dark magic that they're like, oh, the, the orange is now somewhere in the outer cosmos. No. <laughs> they've done something where they've distracted me enough to where they've hidden the orange. I don't know where the orange went. It's usually in my ear. Okay, the same is true for special effects. How odd would it be if I stood up in the middle of a, of a showing of Toy Story and I started yelling liars? Like, everyone would think I was an absolute nut. Now, sometimes misdirection can have an edifying purpose. In Luke chapter 24, verse 28, Jesus is walking with his two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The, uh, the verse says that he acted as if he were going further. Jesus makes like he's going to keep walking when he has no intention of continuing to walk. He wants them to ask him to stay. He knows they're going to ask him to stay, but he pretends for a moment like he's going to walk further on. So he's deceiving them by the way he's acting. Now, literally, I could just stop there. If Jesus does something like this, he never sinned, therefore this is not a sin. It's got to change our whole ethical standard on this subject. I'm going to keep going, but I just want to, I want to start with Jesus as the example. Why would he pretend to do something he's not really going to do? It stirred the disciples that he might go on. They wanted him to stay. It was, it's the most holy reaction to a deception. No, 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 don't go. Stay, come here. Come into this place with us and sit down and eat, which is what he was going to do all along. Now, if all of this kind of untruth is readily acceptable in games, when, in you know, in movies, and Jesus is doing it. Why is it then when we come to life or death situations, we suddenly get very ethical? Like, okay, I'll watch lying all day long uh, when, the, when the World Series is going on, but man, you better not do it when we're talking about the Jay Inslee, right? You better not lie to him. You better not lie to the police. You better not lie, yada, yada, yada. Right? There's a life or death situation over here, and suddenly no lying of any kind, but over here we'll accept it in all kinds of forms, and be like, no, that's fine. I mean, it would be, you'd be a nut if you thought this person was, like, unethical. And, and this right here demonstrates our lack of wisdom, our, our complete lack of wisdom. Now, a lie is a word or act that intentionally deceives a neighbor in order to hurt him. That's what a lie is. Because now what we're going to do is we're going to separate these categories into lies and deception. Lies is when I say, listen... I still, I, like, I steal your checkbook, I, may, I write a check to myself, I cash the money, I write somebody else's name on it, you come and ask me about it, and I'm lying, I'm hurting you. I'm breaking the law, all I'm trying to do is, is damage people. That's lying. If you're, if you're saying something that's untrue because you're trying to take advantage of a person in, in, to your own gain, it's not loving your neighbor, and it's evil. But in warfare, right, it's different. It's edifying. 
the, this, it excludes untruths that come from edifying devices, honest mistakes, honest fiction, games, magic tricks, sports, jokes. Now, here, here's what I want to do. I wanna, I'm just going to tell you a few stories in the Bible where the people speak untruthfully or they, or they leave out some truth or they, they deceive in some way. And God does, maybe sometimes in these stories he tells them to do it, but either way, he, he loves that they have done it. He commends them for having done it. In Exodus chapter 1, we, we have the famous story of the Israelite midwives who flat out lied to Pharaoh, the king, violating Romans 13. In Joshua, in Hebrews, and James, they talk about Rahab. Now, no, note that Rahab wasn't just that she told her countrymen. She was hiding the spies. She lied with her mouth, but she also took enemies of her own city and hid them. And, and everyone in the scriptures calls, I mean, in the book of James, the book of Hebrews, everyone calls what she does glorious and good and beautiful. And she is flat out telling things that are not true and hiding enemy soldiers. Now, at the ambush at AI, this, this was actually God's idea. He says, listen, what I want you to do is hide. <laughs> and then when they run by you, jump out and kill them. And they're like, God, that's a pretty good idea. And every military commander since has copied him. Now, there's uh, J.L., right? She's the one who's like, oh, look at you. You're so tired. Come here and have some milk and lie down. And he lies down, and she then drives a stake into his head. And, right, all the Israelites come and stone her to death. No, no, they didn't. You know why? Because she was defeating their enemy. Samuel misleads Saul as to the reason for his mission. Michael deceives her father's troops in order to hide David. David's counsel to Jonathan is deception. Remember when they, they, were, they were playing that little game? We're going to go out here in the woods, and we're going to you shoot arrows, you call out things, and we're going to know what's going on. David pretends to be a madman. David lies to Achish. 2 Samuel 1, 2, 3, 4. <laughs> yeah, there's like people deceiving one another all over the place in warfare. Elisha misleads the Syrian troops. Jeremiah lies to the princes. God sends powerful delusion so that his enemies will believe a lie. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, God sends a delusion upon his enemies so that they will believe a lie, they're told. Now, that's not just God commanding it. It's him participating in it. He's participating in, a, in the belief of a lie in order to protect his people and harm his enemies. Now, in other cases, deceit, lying, real true lying, is not okay. The Gibeonites dress as travelers from a distant land and gain a peace treaty with Israel and, tri and, and trick them, essentially, into making peace with them, which God said, don't do. And then they're at this point where they're like, okay, well, what do we do? Do we, do we violate the covenant we made, which you're not supposed to do, or do, we, or do we disobey God and not kill these people, which you're not supposed to do? And they just were like, we're going to do nothing. King Saul disguises himself when he consults with the witch of Endor, which we're going to talk about next week. Ahab and Josiah undertake feudal disguises as they go into their final battles. Both of them pretend to be someone else, and they die anyway. David's son Amnon pretends to be ill as a, as a pre pretense to raping his sister. Oh, I'm so sick. Come help me. Now, all of those times, that's not good. But back to the positive side, right? The crafty left-handed Ehud carries his homemade sword on the unexpected right side where it avoids detection. So when they patted him down, they, they, they weren't very thorough because he's a left-handed guy. So he hides the sword on him in such a way is that they, they don't check for it like they should. And he gets it in there. And this is the story where he then slot, um, stabs the guy and the sword goes in all the way to his, like it, his fat swallows it up. Right? And modern pietists would be like, this is horrible. And you're like, this is the word of God. And everyone, and all God's people said, amen. It demonstrates our, our inability to think like God about ethics, to, to resist all kinds of things um, that God thinks is good that we just don't. It just doesn't fit to us. It requires too much wisdom to discern how this actually works. Right? This is assassination in that particular story. Now, Joseph conceals his, um, his identity in order to trick his brothers. The Hebrew midwives lied to Pharaoh. Moses' mother and her, his sister both lie, right? What happens? They put the baby <laughs> in an ark. It floats down the river. Pharaoh's daughter finds it. And then they don't say, oh, you found my baby brother. Let me go get his mother. No, some, she pretends to not know who Moses is. So the Pharaoh's daughter says, oh, go find me someone who can nurse this child. And so she goes and gets her mother. And then so Moses, in the first bit of his life, is raised by his own family because his mother and his sister lied. 
I mean, they, told, they said something that was not true. They deceived Pharaoh's daughter. In the Bible, then, descriptions can, uh, or deception can either be good or bad. Okay? It's either lying, outrightly not supposed to do it, or deception is used as a powerful tool to expand God's kingdom, to bring him glory, to obey him. Now, it's Rahab. Scripture commends, what, what, what Scripture commends about Rahab is exactly her concealment. It's very explicit. They say, the reason that she is a good person is because she lied. Now, we are not obligated to tell the truth in certain specifically defined relationships and situations. Military strategy, right? How, how, what would happen if we sent our troops into, the, <laughs> into foreign parts to, to execute a war, and we told them, now, make sure there, you know, there's no lying, Okay. You, you, you let the enemy see where you are all the time. Don't try to fake them out. In fact, take the camouflage off because that, in a sense, is lying. You're lying by wearing that. You really are there. Like, imagine, what would the army do if we sent them into the field this way? So why is it different for us, the army of the Lord? Right? On some level, we're supposed to do it. And, unless we're going to be those quacks that think all of these things that I'm talking about, right, are, are wickedness. Were the allies, when they were faking out the Germans... Were they committing wickedness? Right, because they did. They had these like three-foot wooden statues that looked like paratroopers, and they dropped them all over places in Normandy. And when they hit the ground, they started popping off as if they were guns. And all of these Germans were like, oh, my goodness, they're over there. Right? And then in history books, we're like, now, kids, this is an example of lying, and you should never do it. We all accept that we're like, man, those guys were smart back in the day. That was smart. And, and then we want to send the army of the Lord into the field and say, okay, no lying. Now, there's the classic story. We're, we're getting close to the end here. There's the classic story. What would you do if there were Jews hiding under your stairs? Now, this one actually does present itself with a bit of a problem here. Because you're either participating in the murder of the Jews, or you're lying about having the Jews under your stairs. So either way, you're violating a commandment. And is it just about picking the lesser of two evils? Or when the SS come to the door, you're like, I have never even heard of a Jew. <laughs> I have no knowledge of what you're speaking of. Right? Now, people, th- this is where we have to be very careful, because there were people whose consciences were very troubled by this, and were like, yeah, they're under the stairs. Now, I, I refuse to, to blame them, because they thought, right, these were pious people who understood the holiness of God, and they were trying to obey God, and, they were, and they're already at going at a great deal of risk, and, the, and their hope was that nobody would ever come to the door and ask them to lie. And in the end, they had to make a decision. And, and what we, what I find the times we're in now are very much like that. We're like, man, you know, um, everybody ought to lie all the time now to the SS. Otherwise, you're sinning. I would never say that. I would never say everybody has got to do the same thing. I would never, because this, the ethical situations that we're in are, are as varied as the individuals sitting in this room. Right? The, the midwives were not lying the same way that Moses' mother and sister were lying. Right? One was standing up to a king and lying to his face. The others just withheld information from Pharaoh's daughter in order to save life. And there were two very different kinds of deception. And, and so even in that story with evil Pharaoh, you've got two different things going on, and they're both good. All of us may have to go about this in very different ways. I'm calling it, though, the Bonhoeffer option. We've talked a lot about the um, various options named after monks. Right? Do we go up to the hills and hide and be, become those uh, people with no social security numbers now? Or right? do we hunker down and, we, and we're like, no, this is what we're going to do. We're going to plant fields here. We're going to build homes here. We're going to raise our kids here, like it says in Isaiah, right, of the exiles. What are we going to do? Well, I actually want to read a story about Bonhoeffer. And I think that this ought to guide us. If you've never read this book, here, is, here it is. It's a biography about Bonhoeffer. And I'm going to read you just this little bit of his story because I think this is what we need to learn. He decides to go into exile and to weaponize it. He decides to deceive. Now, he and his friend, Beth, um, a man named Beth, are, are visiting some friends in Prussia. And this is what happens. On June 14th, German troops marched into Paris. Three days later, uh, La Motte en Col was heard around the world. Okay? So they took Paris. They took it, and the French were defeated. 
Meanwhile, on the far side of the continent, Bonhoeffer and his friend were visiting the pastorate of one of the Finkenwald brothers in eastern Prussia. Now, after a pastor's meeting that morning, they took a ferry across the peninsula and found an outdoor cafe in the sun, and suddenly a trumpet fanfare on the radio loudspeakers announced special news flash. France has surrendered. People went wild. Some of them leaped up, stood on chairs, others stood on tables, everyone threw out his arm and the Nazi salute and burst into Deutschland über alles, and then the horse wassel song, all these Nazi songs. It was a pandemonium of patriotism, and Bonhoeffer and his friend were penned like beetles. Bonhoeffer stood up, threw out his arm, and said, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler, at the top of his lungs. His friend stood there gawking at him. Bonhoeffer whispered to him, Are you crazy? Raise your arm. We'll have to run risks for many different things, but this silly salute is not one of them. (laughs) Now, how many of us, when we think about this, would be like, Over my dead body will I raise my arm and say, Heil Hitler. And yet he does it. You know why? Because he has bigger fish to fry. Now, does that mean, now, now, how wicked would it be if he's like, Okay, everybody just sell out and do it now. No, for him, he did not want the heat of the moment on him. He wants to look like everybody else. It was then that his friend, Beth, realized that Bonhoeffer had crossed the line. He was behaving conspiratorially. He didn't want to be thought of as an objector. He wanted to blend in. He didn't want to make an anti-Hitler statement. He had bigger fish to fry. Beth said that he knew that at that moment, Bonhoeffer was saluting Hitler. His friend had crossed from confession to resistance. As the role, his role in the conspiracy developed, he goes on, and they attempt to assassinate Hitler three times. This is a minister in the Lutheran church, and he is conspiring to murder Hitler. Now, the other thing that he does, and this is, this, this is I think, one of, like, this man had a lot of courage. Because there they are in, in Nazi Germany, and they're trying to wash away every, every idea of anything Jewish. No Judaism and you know what he wrote a commentary on, the last book he published before he went to prison? Psalms. He's like, you know what, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to elevate David. I'm going to elevate, uh, elevate a portion of the, of the Hebrew Bible at exactly the time when everybody is trying to wash all of the Judaism out of Germany. So, yeah, he'll go to a cafe and say, Heil Hitler, fine. But what he'll also do is promote portions of the Hebrew Bible, even though it's something that everybody says don't do it. He does it. So did he, and he got a lot of attention at that point. They started following, following him around at that point. So what is he? Is he a compromiser or not? In the, in the coming months, in the coming weeks, in the coming years, I'll be honest with you guys, years, we have got to understand that they're sending us into exile. We no longer are sitting in the public square and everyone asking us our opinion. Well, let us have the ministers of the word of God come in now, like they used to at the Supreme Court in the, in a, right, at Congress, and let us hear from the ministers of God's word. We don't have that spot anymore. Okay? If, you're, if you deny science, um, climate change, if you deny Darwinism, if you deny Marxism, they'll kick you out of the academy. If you don't go along with what the state says, you will lose your job. It, right? It, I don't care whether it's effective or not. I, I don't care about the, the, the validity of the vaccination and whether it works. I don't even want to have that conversation. I am opposed 100% to co- coercion. Amen. And they are going now to send us into exile. And what I want all of us to understand is that that is a great blessing. It's, it's about time. Because the Christianity that we all know, that we have all known for decades, that we have all known going back several generations, has got to die and go in the ground. And it's not until then, not until then will we know glory. Not until then will we know victory. Not until then will we make progress. It's time for the Christianity that we've all been so comfortable with to die. It's time for all of us to go into exile. And when we do that, we have got to be prepared as to how to fight, because some of us are going to have to do a lot of deception. Some of us are going to be in positions where there is, right, I will say Heil Hitler over my dead body. Some of us are going to go in the position where I'm expecting you to say Heil Hitler. I will be encouraging you to do it because there are places where we're going to be fighting this war from within on every level. And we've got to steal our nerve and steal our minds and learn the scriptures and learn the stories and know what our people in exile are supposed to do. David is expanding the kingdom of God. David is protecting people. David is bringing life. David is converting people and making friends amongst the Gentiles. And he's the one who's on the run. 
It's time for us to go on the run. And I want you to know how much good we're going to do while we're there if we are faithful to God. What does faithfulness to God look like at this moment? In, in, your, in your world, in your house, amongst your family members, because it looks different for, for each of us. It's time not only for Christianity to die, but for ourselves to die. It's time to go in the ground, and that's because that's the only way that things move forward. It's the only, right, it's the only process God has to defeat his enemies, death and resurrection, death and resurrection, death and resurrection. And what we have got to do is stop resisting it, but get on board. That's the time that we're living in. In the coming months, we are going to see that we all have different roles to play, different battles to fight, but we cannot resist what's coming. We can't. We've got to embrace it, and we've got to prepare for it. It's the only way that we're going to defeat Inslee. I mean, Pharaoh. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's the only way we're going to survive is by dying and going into exile. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the ministry of Bonhoeffer and Samuel and David. Lord, and your faithful children who have gone into exile and thrived, because that, Lord God, is where your people thrive, in the, in the ground, Lord. You are the one who, who takes us down to the grave, Lord, and because you are the one who brings us up. Let us all die to ourselves. Let the Christianity that we have taken for granted, that has become so comfortable, that has become so meaningless in the modern world, die so that it may rise again, that we all may rise in Christ and go to the work that you've given us faithfully and obediently. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.